Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Yo, we're starting to see some bad decisions get reversed and vacated, decimated, preparing for rebirth, and now everyone is running in a race to be first. Do the timelines accelerate? Is that the way it works? We'll talk with the expert, Bloomberg's James Safert, about the Bitcoin ETF. How many there be left? Is it possible the commission is still ready to reject? Yo, it's 2023. I'm heady on the beat, breaking levies with my flow, see my enemies retreat. Yo, I'm deadly on the street, like I'm speeding in my whip, but no chance of roll toss in my spot when I dip. Though I'm striking, igniting, with my potent writing. Some call me Alex Thorne, others say the Bitcoin Viking. Although I'm institutional, I'm heady in my veins. Yo, we're talking revolution every day on Galaxy Brain. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, James Safer, ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, is our guest. We will get into Grayscale's victory over the SEC at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and what it means for Bitcoin ETF landscape going forward. And as always, we'll check in with our good friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading to talk markets. But before I get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast represents investment advice or an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Wow, we've got a great episode this week. Very timely. So let's just hop right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, my friend, thank you for joining Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Yeah, big news this week, something everyone's been waiting for for several weeks. People like me have been auto-refreshing Pacer, the the online uh, docket search tool, waiting for a ruling in Grayscale versus SEC on Tuesday, August 29th, uh, the district, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled unanimously in favor, uh, 3-0 ruling in favor of Grayscale. Um, we're going to talk with Bloomberg ETF, intelligence ETF analyst James Safert after this, so we won't get into the procedural stuff around ETFs and, and the meaning of the ruling necessarily. But Bimnet, what was the reaction in Bitcoin markets uh, yesterday? Yeah, no, I, I think the market started to price in a greater probability of, a, of an eventual approval of, of an ETF by, by the SEC. Um, the price action, you know, supported that conclusion with Bitcoin going from twenty six thousand two hundred uh, to a high of twenty eight thousand two hundred, a move about uh, of about seven to eight percent. Um, since then, uh, we have retraced that that move, um, and I think that's just a function of just expectations for this ETF can only get so high. Um, you know, the the odds, you know, were already pretty high in folks' heads, you know, after BlackRock, uh, you know, fought, made that filing. Uh, but now that, you know, the SEC is, you know, definitively lost in in, in court, um, I think that probably just, just nudged it a bit higher. Um, but it, it's really sort of at that critical point where everybody that's in this market is expecting an eventual approval. And so your risks were that, you know, that was the initial move. Um, in addition, you know, there, there's a lot of delta neutral trades that that folks run um, that, you know, when you had this Bitcoin move happen actually leads to, to, to kind of an increased sell pressure. You know, we can touch upon that that later. Um, but uh, all in all, um, I, I think you had a, a move that was, you know, flushed out shorts, right? You had a, a, a tremendous amount of, you know, liquidations um, t- to the upside. Um, 
but you haven't really seen follow through. Um, and I'd also like to highlight, you know, you, normally it's spot up vol up in, in the in the crypto market where, you know, if you get a, a five to you know 10 percent move in, in Bitcoin, you typically see uh, updated sorry upside calls um, sort of being more bid off from a vol perspective. Uh, but the long dated stuff really didn't move that much uh, in, in crypto. Um, and so it just kind of shows that the, the market isn't really uh, buying the fact that there's going to be follow through to, to this move. And I think it's important to highlight that this is happening in the context of equity markets that are trading incredibly well. Um, this week, we did have, um, you know, a little bit of, of change to, to, to kind of our, our macro outlook. And, and that's kind of what's been uh, causing broader risk to rally. Um, but let me just pause there. Yeah, what was the change in in macro? I have seen equities uh, 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 are, I mean, they're near all time highs again. I mean, what yes. what is driving that move? So yesterday you had a significant drop in in job openings uh, from around nine point four million um, job openings to like eight point eight million, and normally um, job openings you know tend to lead uh, you know other sort of labor market metrics. Right. People aren't going to get, you know, people are going to stop hiring new people before they lay off um, existing people. It's, it's kind of the intuitive logic to it. Uh, but high level, you had a, a pretty big miss in labor market data for the first time in a really long time. That's been sort of the uh, most anchored part of, of, of the economy. And what we know, um, you know, just from our own historical analysis, is that labor market data tends to lag. Uh, when you're going through, you know, a, re- a recession or a contraction in, in economic activity or, you know, that part of the, the business cycle. And so, you know, everybody's kind of been waiting for, for for hints in the labor market. And you finally got it yesterday. And you've seen a little bit of follow through today with, with ADP coming in slightly softer at, at around 177,000 jobs added. Um, so in the context of, you know, the Fed's response function, which Powell laid out pretty eloquently on, on on Jackson Hole last week on Friday, which is, you know, they're data dependent. If data stays hot, you know, they'll probably hike a little bit more. If not, you know, they're going to be less inclined to, to hike again. Um, and so, you know, the market's just taking its cues from the data and you're seeing a little bit of a turn. And now we have, you know, PCE inflation data out tomorrow. In addition, uh, you do have uh, non-farm payrolls on, on Friday as well. And so those are two big, you know, points that if, you were to see a, a little bit more softening in that data. That'll cause a further rally in, in, in duration um, in the U.S. A lot of the rally has been uh, front end, uh, you know, led. And so you have had that that curve steepening still. Um, but, you know, I, I would expect if if you get soft data tomorrow with respect to PCE on a month end date um, like tomorrow, um, you could see a pretty significant bid in duration. And that'll have a, a spillover into um, equity markets and, and and they'll probably continue to take us higher. Uh, but again, do I think equity should be sitting at close to all time highs with valuations, you know, pretty elevated as well? Probably not. But ultimately, um, if, if the Fed is going to start being dovish, you know, that's the biggest sign to be long risk assets. And so, you know, the easy, the way to trade markets in general is just to follow the central banks. And so, you know, I think that's what, what you have to do. And that should bode well for, for things like, like Bitcoin and gold. Yeah. So the idea is that um, if the the uh, job openings uh, lead uh, unemployment, basically, that we see softening in the economy, which means the Fed's work is working and means inflation, they may be able to, you know, ease their hiking schedule sooner, right? That's sort of the broad it's the it's the ba- the bad news is good news quote unquote uh, for for equities Correct. and risk assets. 
Now, what makes things tricky, though, is there's already a significant level of cuts priced into the market. Um, so what I like to look at is like the one-year, one-year interest rate forward and the, the two-year, one-year um, interest rate forward. And so basically, uh, in a year from now, the one-year um, you know, OIS rate or one, the one-year average interest rate is expected to be around 4.17 you know, uh, basis points. And so to give you context, right now, Fed funds sets at 533. And so it's a, you, know, you already have over 100 basis points of, of, of cuts there. Um, and then when you get to kind of where your neutral rate assumptions are, like the, the two, you know, the three-year, one-year, two-year, one-year points, you know, being around 360, that's implying over 200 basis points of cuts already. Um, and so what, what's really tough, you know, for me to to think about and, and for the market in general is, let's say we do start easing, how how much can we actually ease before the, you know, the, the risk of reigniting inflation becomes too great? Right. If I told you if 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 interest rates dropped by 200 basis points tomorrow, folks would start buying houses like crazy. Right. And folks would buy Nasdaq like crazy. And all of a sudden you would, you know, then be reigniting the, the exact same things that were causing the inflation to begin with. And so, you know, I I, I just struggle, like even if you do think data is going to turn hard for the next six months. Is that really sustainable given the structural elements that we have in, in our, you know, labor market and, and and mortgage market? You know, I'll give you an idea, right? Like, let's say, you know, we, we start to see, you know, some, some some labor market metrics soften. Like the stuff structurally that's going on is just going to be so tough to overcome. Uh, construction's, you know, one of the, the best examples. I think for every like 10 retiring like construction workers, there's only like three or four filling in their place. And, and and the metrics get worse, you know, as you like get, you know, into to further specializations, like whether it's like electricians, plumbers, uh, but, you know, the, these specific trade type things, um, you know, there's really a structural labor market shortage, right? And that's the reason why we've literally still had like, you know, over almost like two jobs per job applicant or per, per you know, job seeker. Um, for for the better part of the, of the last year, and so there's still so many structural things in the labor market. In addition, everybody still has you know a mortgage sub four percent or sub five, and so it's going to be tough to overcome those things. And and I think the rate market gets a little ahead of itself because it's so worried about you know the situation where the Fed's emergency cutting or something bl- is blowing up and everybody's panicking because we did have something similar to that happen you know basically 6 months ago uh with the regional banking crisis and and the market you know getting way ahead of itself and pricing an emergency cuts within the next meeting and so people are still scarred by what happened earlier this year in terms of you know when folks panic about markets they think the fed's got to cut by like 100 200 basis points at a time and so, you know, I think that you just see a lot of cuts baked in because of that 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 fear. But ultimately, um, I think this economy is is super resilient. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're we're still going to be in this period of of higher for longer. Um, and we haven't been in in that kind of period in in a, in a pretty long time. And so, uh, the the consequences of it um, are are still kind of you know. A little unknown. Yeah, I, it's fascinating. I, I fear the uh, 1973 to 1985 inflation resurgence, mm-hmm. and we know the Fed does as well. Um, that was the Volcker era, and I think that that really underpins a lot of Jay Powell's language on higher for longer. 
um, you know, that's a risk, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's where this comes from. Absolutely. And now uh, to throw in like an interesting caveat to this is, you know, where this equation, you know, differs from, from the seventies and, and the Volcker era is the magnitude of, of fiscal, um, in the U S as a percentage of, of GDP. Um, and you know, just the outright levels, the amount of treasury supply that has to get absorbed over the next, you know, couple of years is, is outrageous. Right. And, and it's it's, you know, not only that that supply, you know, from from the government, but from, you know, the banks, you know, private markets, it's a lot. And the math behind, you know, the fiscal spending is not improving the, the portion of the fiscal budget that goes towards interest. Right. And, and and then, you know, like you just keep running the math, you get to a point where it's like, is this really sustainable? Um, does the Fed have to cut to make sure that the government can can properly finance itself, or does the Fed have to like start absorbing all of the issuance or the 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 you know the extra issuance of of of, of the government, and then you get into this weird MMT logic. Um, and if you inflation becomes an issue, it's like what is the you know what does the Fed want to do? You know, do they want to? you know, help tackle the inflation issue or, or are we going to have a, a sound and resilient government that can, uh, you know, fund itself well? And so it, it, it sets up some, some very intriguing um, setups that, that are very unique to, to what we've had in, in the past. Yep. Yep. Very interesting. Big questions ahead for markets. As always, Bimnet, my friend from Galaxy Trading. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Let's go now to our guest, James Seyfert, ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. James, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. James uh, is probably well known to many people in the Bitcoin uh, and markets world because uh, if, if not for the only reason that he has been covering the Bitcoin ETF race for years at this point and his tables, his Bloomberg tables that show the expected deadlines for various SEC decision points have become widely shared and relied upon by the industry. So given the news this week of Grayscale's loss at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal, sorry, Grayscale's win at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals against the SEC uh, over the SEC's review of GBDC's conversion application, I thought it would be great to talk to James about this never-ending, almost 10-year-long saga of the Bitcoin ETF. Um, James, I mean, just what are your initial impressions from the from the Grayscale ruling? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, this has been something I've been covering for a very long time. And honestly, initially, I, it felt like I was one of the very few people that really cared about it. Um, there were a lot of ironically unique um, uh, terminal clients, Bloomberg terminal clients, who cared about these Grayscale trusts because of the premiums and discounts. And there was a lot of people that were not necessarily interested in Bitcoin or Ethereum or crypto, but like in these arbitrage and unique special situations. So I was talking with a lot of clients on that. Um, but for the most part, it was just me toiling away without many people caring too much. Um, but my initial um, thoughts are like, this was a complete repudiation of all of the SEC's arguments, right? This is This was not just some like, uh, hand slap and this you you didn't do this right or this some procedure was wrong this was a complete and utter repudiation with very strong language um, saying basically that what the SEC was writing in their denial letters makes absolutely no sense which is something I've been saying in my notes for the last couple of years because anyone trying to argue that the spot markets and futures markets aren't completely and utterly intertwined just it doesn't make sense to anyone who understands financial markets yeah it, the language was very harsh and let's get into like some of those points because um the the uh dis uh the distinguishing between spot and futures was at the core of the fact that they continued to deny 
2021 spot applications, but didn't you know approve those futures based applic- uh, applications, which are trading today, right? Which you CME futures and they roll futures basically to um, gain exposure to Bitcoin. A lot of people have talked about how um, those products are incredibly inefficient due to roll cost, right? They constantly have to you know, buy, hold futures through expiry, buy new futures. And I think if you look at some of those, I, you know, I won't mention them, you know, by name, but like, if you look at them, they, they have actually significantly underperformed Bitcoin this year. Um, you know, not egregiously so, you might say, but, and that's because they're inefficient products, which is why so many people have called for a spot-based ETF, among other reasons. Um, what did they say in, in the, you know, Judge Rao, circuit court judge, I think a Trump appointee, joined in this unanimous unanimous decision of this three-judge panel by a, a Carter and Obama appointee uh, to sort of slap down the SEC's arguments. What did they say as far as that distinguishment, the intertwining between these these markets, the, the futures and spot? Yeah, so this all comes back to essentially the SEC had been denying any Bitcoin ETF applications. And then Gensler basically prodded them to apply under the 1940 Act. But before those 40 Act applications were applied for, which is some of those ones you were talking about. And one thing I do want to point out is I've seen people quoting like 25, 30% underperformance year to date. These things pay out dividends. So on a total return basis, it's more like seven or 8%. So like you said, it's not egregious. It's not good, but it's it's an additional cost, but it's not the 25, 30% that I've seen people in the crypto world try to try to spout. Uh, that's just the price return and doesn't include the dividends. So so that's one thing I would say uh, to any of the listeners out there. Um, and then, yeah, it comes back to that. So basically once there was, there was application before that go under the same process, it's called the 19B4 process. It's the process that the spot Bitcoin ETFs are applying under. It's the process that Grayscale tried to convert GBTC under. And it has all these deadlines for the SEC to issue approvals or denials which is different from those 40 act products I was talking about. But there was two two firms, Valkyrie and Tucrium, who had applied for this before those before Gary gave that speech. And the SEC basically came up to a deadline in 2021 where they had to decide or 2022 where they had to decide whether they were going to say the 1940 act and 33 act are sufficiently different, which again I think they would have lost in a court case if they made that argument. Um, or they had to figure out a way to approve the 33 act futures ETFs under the same process that spot is trying to be approved. Um, and that's what they did. And so basically this whole thing came back to grayscale attacking the sec under the administrative procedures act saying that they did not treat like situations alike. And basically their argument was futures ETFs are alike to spot Bitcoin ETFs and Basically, the court completely agreed with pretty much 100% of the things that Grayscale and Grayscale's lawyers were arguing um, in court and in their briefings. Yeah, you, you guys said um, <clears throat> when you had issued a, a prediction of 70% likelihood that Grayscale would prevail in the suit following the oral arguments in March. Um, and and to your point, I mean, the, the, I'm reading from the opinion here now, the commission failed to adequately explain why it approved the listing of two Bitcoin futures ETPs, but not Grayscale's proposed Bitcoin ETP in the absence of a coherent explanation, unlike regulatory treatment of like products is unlawful. Um, no coherent explanation given by the SEC, right? On that point, they, they never actually put forth any justification for one and not the other. So their justification kind of somewhat made sense, but like they 
my opinion, what I've been saying for years is that the SEC kind of lost the forest for the trees here. They were focused on minute details, but like when you take a step back and you look at it, you're like, this doesn't hold up. It really just doesn't make sense. And yet, so uh, during those rulings, we were obviously covering it live and trying to figure out what's happening. And I even said, we went into it. We thought that with the Rao was going to side with Grayscale, who you, who wrote this opinion. Um, Sri Srinivasan, who is the chief judge in the case we thought was a possible take. And then going in, we didn't think Edwards would really side um, with Grayscale. But after listening to the arguments and the questions that the judges were asking, we were like, oh my God, this could go 3-0. Um, so that's, that was my case. Like I, I think they win 2-1 at the very least and that they could go 3-0 in favor of Grayscale. Um, so that's what happened. Basically that day we went to 70%. But before that, there were a lot of people out there telling, saying that this Grayscale was filing a frivolous lawsuit, despite like the names that were filing this lawsuit, the, the lawyers that were on there. And one of the big things we had to keep pushing back on was like, this isn't frivolous, like that they have legit standing here. And now all those people, like I'm tempted to go back and try to find the any comments or people saying things to me, talking about how this is a frivolous lawsuit and has no chance. Um, <laughs> but I won't do that. I'm, I won't get that petty. No, I get it. I mean, and I, I recall when they when Grayscale filed this suit last summer that there was a lot of people who said it was frivolous and and you know i i try yep. in general <clears throat> it's not my job specifically to do this although sometimes people ask me to i try not to prognosticate the outcomes of legal cases because as you know they can be very uh tricky and 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 it's one thing i've said about the sec's approach here which is you know with all these litigation matters and enforcements kind of rolling the dice in court all over the place where sure they could win but they could also lose and see their power significantly curtailed it's a risky regulatory strategy for them um, let's talk about the surveillance agreements because this has been a huge sticking point for various Bitcoin deny ETF denials over the years. Um, I think the standard the SEC is seeking is 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 what a regulated market of sufficient size with surveillance agree- uh, sharing agreements. And I guess was the argument in appro- was one of the arguments in approving the futures based ETFs that CME futures were a regulated market of sufficient size and that you could surveil that and. That therefore those get through is was that what the SEC was saying? Yeah, so it's funny. I, I said that the SEC kind of had to decide if they were going to approve on based on the difference between the 1933 Act or 1940 Act or um, approve them, right? And the way that they got around those rulings where they said they wanted a regulated market of significant size, which to be clear, neither of those terms are fully like defined. Like, there's no like test to say what that fits regulated markets a little more clear but significant size really isn't and the sec like took advantage of that in approving that two gram application which is now hashdex's DeFi etf which ironically enough they are now in the spot bitcoin etf race in a way but we'll go back to that the reason the way that they approved those under that 19 before process i talked about was they basically said the cme market is regulated market yes because it's regulated by the cftc but I don't think you would be able to find anyone in the crypto world that would be like, yeah, the CME market is a market of significant size for crypto derivatives or crypto trading <laughs> or anything. And and so the way the SEC got around that was saying that it's a regular, it's a market of significant size with respect to CME Bitcoin futures market. So basically <laughs> it was a market of significant size with respect to itself. So like if that doesn't dictate like the SEC basically what usually happens and what we understand happens is they make a decision and then they go to the staff and the staff has to back into that decision legally with whatever legal reasoning they could come up with. And that was the best defense they could come up with for why they were approving futures and not spot. Um, so in that approval letter, which was cited multiple times in the in Rao's ruling, um, basically the SEC spent a ton of time saying, we're approving this because of X, Y, and Z, but not approving spot because of ABC. And 
spent an insane amount of time saying what differentiates futures from spot. And all of those things, basically, Rao and the judges completely shot down um, for lacking substance and cohesion. And what was the word? Uh, reasoned decision-making. <laughs> yeah, reasoned decision-making. Yeah, I'll read that quote real quick because it's a great one. It says, the commission's unexplained discounting of the obvious financial and mathematical relationship between spot and futures markets falls short of the standard for reasoned decision-making. Um, which is, I mean, that's a, you know, polite legalese way of saying like, dude, like there's nothing about this is reasonable that you, that you, uh, argued. Um, let's talk about what happens now to grayscale specifically. I think, um, well, why don't you tell us? I mean, there was a, you know, I think there was a lot of smart people yesterday. So we're recording on Wednesday, August 30th. This all happened on Tuesday, August 29th. Um, and a lot of smart people, including yourself, were out on, on media saying, guys, like this doesn't mean that GBTC converts to an ETF. Like, but what what does it mean for GBTC? So really all this is doing is it completely vacates the SEC's order for denying GBTC's conversion under the for the reasons that the SEC gave. So basically that letter that they sent denying GBTC's conversion, gone. Me- meaningless, can't use those reasons again. Um, or they need to add more substance proof or coherent <laughs> reasoning, I guess you could say. Um, so essentially all it does is it basically says that doesn't work. So that's thrown out. What the next steps are, we're not really sure. A lot of these court cases I've read in preparation for this is trying to figure out like what's going to happen. The, the, the opinion kind of says like in this time frame, XYZ needs to happen or whatever. There was none of that in this case. So really, it's kind of back in the SEC's hands. So I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. Now, as far as timeline goes, um, like I said, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But I, within 45 days, we'll either have an answer or have an, a, a timeline because the SEC has 45 days, which I believe puts them at October 13th from the decision, um, before to appeal for an en banc hearing, which is kind of like they're they're going to request to do an en banc hearing. The way this this court works is it's a panel of judges, so three judges dictate what happened. Like I said, this was a unanimous decision, 3-0 for Grayscale. Um, but if the SEC really wants, they could request this type of hearing, which basically says we want all of the judges on the court. In this case, I think there's 17 to look at this and see if these this three judge panels adjudicated it correctly. Yep. Um, the the odds of that happening we think are very slim. But that said, within 45 days, because that's the deadline for that, for for filing for that or asking for that, we'll know like what happens next. But we really don't know what happens next. But we can talk into like potential outcomes of what the SEC could do. I mean, one is obviously to not uh, is obviously approve this conversion and other all these other filings potentially, and the other is basically find a different way for to deny these things if they're really going to be steadfast in their their stances here against the crypto and Bitcoin specifically. Yeah. Can they go back and retroactively deny the futures ETFs that they already approved as a way of getting around this contradiction? Yeah. So as we talked about, like a lot of the, most of this case basically was state like on the fact that you can't treat Bitcoin futures ETFs and say their spot is subject to fraud and manipulation and then say Bitcoin futures aren't like there, that doesn't make any sense. So one way could be that the SEC basically revokes the approval of futures ETFs. We think that's rather unlikely. I mean, we just had a 2x Bitcoin futures ETF launch in June. We have a bunch of ETFs that have been, years, have been around for years. There's billions of dollars in them. Um, well, about a billion, I guess I should say. Um, and then also they're they're looking, they've accepted basically, we're, we're 90% confident that Ethereum futures ETFs are going to launch in October based on things we've heard and seen from the SEC. So for that reason, we're skeptical of that, that path, but depending on how <laughs> staunch yeah. Gensler and his uh, political bosses want to be, that is 
that's certainly a possibility. But again, I would think that opens them up to another court case and potential loss um, because I don't I don't know how they would defend that. And there's 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 some other ways too that they could deny this. I think. So, and then you're saying 45 days, we're likely to figure out what the process is from the SEC because that's their timeline to request an en banc hearing at the Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. So they either do that or they don't. And if they don't, they'll probably say why. Is is one of the ideas here um, that the SEC might – is one reason the SEC might not appeal because if they have in their mind that they're already sort of snowballing into likelihood of appealing other spot BT – Bitcoin ETFs that just throwing GBDC into the queue is like doesn't require them to do anything new. Is that how you're thinking about it? So that's part of it. Also, we, this is this has become a political decision. If that's not evident to, to to everyone, this has mostly become political. It's not really based on the facts before before anyone. Um, so part of it is like it, we think that it will be politically advantageous for Gensler to spin this as a win for the crypto industry because of the things like the surveillance sharing agreement, like these other going after these other exchanges, including Binance. Um, basically they'll say like, we're cleaning up the crypto industry. We got Coinbase to come in and share their markets and we put them with the big boys over at uh, NASDAQ and BlackRock and these other huge firms in Vesco. Um, and they'll say like, we've institutionalized, we brought the, the, the adults in the room um, he can spin this as a win, right? And also if he does that and he approves these other applications, including Grayscale, ultimately he could say like, look, we may have lost on our reason, but like we just wanted a surveillance sharing agreement. BlackRock was the first one to do this. Now all these other filings have done it and it satisfies what we were concerned about. So like almost kind of like puts away some of the arguments that the, it like diminute, it like uh, takes away from some of the sting of this, this Grayscale victory. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, what, what is the, you know, just going back real quick to the um, the spot versus futures, you know, you point out the total return looks a lot better for the futures ETFs than just the the price of the, of the ETFs. Um, why then, how monumental is the spot ETF then if people can already access these future ones, futures based ones in their brokerage accounts and, and wherever on wealth platforms? Like why, why the spot ETF? Why is it such a big deal? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we refer to it as the holy grail. Um, you talked about futures, you have to roll them. So there's those costs that are adding up to 7 to 8% a year. Like if you had to buy a fund and the cost was 8 9% <laughs> for you to hold it every single year, like people are flipping out about GBTC's 2% fee, which rightfully so, it's very, rather high. Um, but like that's just an additional cost that you're incurring because the futures market is con in contango. So you're you're selling the current month and buying the next month. And if that current month is a lower price than the next month, you're selling low and buying high. And that's just eating at your return. And the bigger that contango is, that steep steepness of the contango, the more your costs are going to be. So that's the downside. The positive side is that like these things track very closely, particularly over shorter time periods, days, weeks, even a month or two. Um, they co they're going to track very closely. So they're very good for people doing tactical trades, um, day trading, things like that. But if you really want to trade, these things are extremely good. There is no problem with them. Honestly, a spot Bitcoin probably wouldn't improve on that factor. The problem is these are rather expensive. Uh, they're like 80, 90 bips, right? Um, and then also the, the roll costs, those add up over the time, over the long term. And spot, we think, is going to come in and really uh, bring prices down. So for anyone who's an advisor, right, if you're an advisor, that's where they have like $30 trillion in the U.S. Um, they manage people's money. If, if you're an advisor who have clients that want to hold crypto or do hold crypto on something like Coinbase or Gemini, what have you, 
um, there's there's a few factors here, right? One is like if you want to give them exposure in under your umbrella. So the advisors usually make a fee on the assets that they control. So they'll make a fee. Say you have a million dollars, their their fee might be one percent. If somebody has like a hundred grand in crypto, they would much rather have it in an ETF under their umbrella with ease that they control and charge the fees for maintaining that. Also. An advisor just wants to know what's going on with their client's money, right? So they, they, they'll, they'll get the whole picture. So people, advisors like that aren't going to buy a futures ETF for the long term, right? Right. Um, they, that's just not going to happen. So some people argue like, well, why don't the advisor just put it into a spot Bitcoin? These guys, they, they don't want to deal with that, to be quite frank. Like this is going to make it so easy for them. All their, the, the financial plumbing and the traditional financial markets will make it easier for them to click buy because they're used to ETFs. They prefer ETFs. They love ETFs. Um, and it's a proven structure that they know that their assets will be safe. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And and the like, if we think about the caliber of how would you characterize the maturity and caliber of both the newer uh, issuing applicants and their applications in general. I mean, we've seen, obviously, you know, you started with the Winklevoss ETF in what, 2014 or something. And 13, now you've got 2013 and Fidelity and Invesco, et cetera. But um, the filings have also evolved. Uh, just is that a maturation of the market? Is that a sign of institutional confidence in Bitcoin overall? What is that a sign of? I would say yes, but it's also a sign of like, basically the SEC had good reason for denying Gemini's application, right? So like, let's be frank there. Like for the first seven-ish years of them denying these things, it kind of made sense. There was a lot of issues with figuring out how pricing would work. The exchanges weren't really um, <laughs> up to snuff with what regulators are used to dealing with in traditional financial worlds. Um, but that kind of changed after 2017, I'd say in the 2020-ish time range, 2018 time range, a lot of things got cleaned up. And basically what these issuers who have been applying um, since 2017, some of these big issuers like Vanek, I think is the first real ETF issuer to try to do this. Um, they've kind of chipped away at all of the SEC's concerns, like one by one. So in these applications are getting denied, but like they got denied for 20 reasons initially. And then it was, they got rid of, they solved three of them really well. So the SEC stopped worrying about it and they just kept chipping away at those things. And part of that is the SEC uh, got very, got more comfortable in understanding these markets and also these appli applicants. So Invesco, who's partnered with Galaxy, um, they're a big, huge financial firm. You mentioned um, Fidelity. You mentioned BlackRock. Then you have a bunch of other people like uh, Bitwise and Valkyrie and Arc Twenty One Shares is partnered with Arc is partnered with Twenty One Shares, who's a huge crypto ETF firm in in Europe. So they'll all have their different strengths and weaknesses, right? So some of them are going to be like, we really know the crypto markets. We have a lot of experience there will handle unique circumstances really well, like forks and what have you. Whereas these other these other big, huge firms were like, we're confident we can do this as well. So there's two different angles coming at it from here. But that what it really shows is that like everyone is kind of focusing on this. I mean, we have 11 different firms who are really focused on trying to get spot Bitcoin into an ETF. Do you think it would cause like significant inflows or is there a bunch of latent demand? I think about GLD and when it launched and what it did for gold. Um, how do you think about this as sort of a, um, you know, a, a bullish narrative, but actual event too, right? It's not just a headline where a, a, an ETF to be approved. It comes with structural market changes. You know, how, what do you think it would do for Bitcoin? Yeah, so there's three things on here, and hopefully I can remember all of them while I'm talking. But the first is like, I don't think it'll be as big as GLD. GLD was like the first real democratization to spot gold, right? Um in from like your computer or your broker that it was the first way to really do that. Um, 
Bitcoin, crypto, you can already do that on Coinbase or Gemini or Strike or whatever platform you can think of, right? So people, if they really wanted exposure, they already have it. Um, what I do think is that this signifies more, not that, oh my God, the herd is coming, institutions are going to pour tons of money here. Um, maybe a little bit, maybe, maybe some institutions will get more comfortable and pour money in, but really it's more about the signal it sends from the SEC. Um, the regulatory bodies, like it, it's kind of like things are getting more accepted. You get some of that regulatory clarity you hear um, everywhere. We got a little bit of that from the courts yesterday, um, basically saying the SEC is overstepping their bounds. Um, so it's more about the signal that it sends. And the other part of this, the third point, which I'm glad I remembered all three, is you have Grayscale, which is a unique situation here. Right now it's trading at about a 19% discount last I checked, like 20 minutes ago, um, changing. It was at 25 before the Grayscale ruling went down to as low as 16% discount. Now it's back around 20. Um, who knows what's going to happen? So right now you can't touch that underlying Bitcoin. It has They have over 600,000 Bitcoin in there. Once they convert to an ETF, one of the benefits is that discount will be gone. But part of the reason that discount will be gone is because you can access the underlying Bitcoin. So what does that do for Bitcoin on the market? Um, so one, that could be forced selling because people want out now that they can get out at NAV. Um, the other part of it is that are those people that want out, are they short? So if they're short Bitcoin and long grayscale, once this unlocking happens, then it's actually a net buying opportunity or buying for Bitcoin. So um, going back to like 2020 or even 2018, I, most people were hedged when they held GBTC. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of institutions that I mentioned earlier on playing this as a special situation thing. So they were long the trust and short the underlying asset. Um, that didn't work out so well for a lot of different people, including some names like Three Arrows Capital and uh, BlockFi <laughs> and uh, even DCG, who's been a big holder. There's a, there's a lot of names that got burned pretty badly um, doing things like that with GBTC. So I'm I there's no way to know how many people are actually short Bitcoin and long grayscale. So like grayscale's massive size really could dictate what actually happens. It's not. I hear a lot of people talking about how this is nothing but bullish is going to create billions of dollars of inflows. And I think it's more complex than that. And I think most people who've looked at this know that it's more complex than than that. Yeah, fascinating. Let, let's talk some key dates, James, because um, you're I, I said one of the things I think that has helped you become very well known in the Bitcoin world is you're incredibly um, useful and constantly updating charts and t or table of uh, the, the deadlines. So let's let's talk deadlines. Um, we've got one, this, this podcast comes out on, on Friday, uh, September 1st. I think we've, that's the first set of deadlines, right. For those June filings and refilings. Um, and, and then maybe like throw in a little bit more color about your, your expectations for a uh, likelihood of approval by the end of the year. Like what are we, what's coming up? Yeah. So we just put a note out this morning and said, we had, um, we we're pegging the odds at 75% that we see approval this year. Um, that's up from 65% before this decision dropped. And part of the reason we upped those is, one, obviously the decision happened. We were pretty confident that Grayscale was going to win. But the unanimity, un unanimity? the <laughs> unanimous nature of that of that filing um, and the decisive language, the harsh language that they used to the SEC kind of made us jump even further. Um, so that that's why we went to 75%. We also went to about 95% by the end of 2024. Um, so we think it's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. And as you mentioned, those deadlines, um, the ones coming up, we have the first one that comes up is deadline is Bitwise. Their their actual deadline is September 1st. But then you also have BlackRock, Vanek, Wisdom Tree, uh, Invesco, and Galaxy, Fidelity. All are due on the second, which is a Saturday. Um, so the SEC will issue their orders 
on Friday, almost certainly. Could come early. It's a deadline, so it could come earlier. So theoretically, it's today's Wednesday. It could come tomorrow, but it's likely to come on Friday. Um, and we're expecting delays on that front just because this happened. So this just happened. I don't think the SEC is, is going to turn around and approve these things immediately. But at the same time, I wouldn't put that completely out of the question. I mean, if the SEC turns around and approves a bunch of these things while we're in this kind of gray zone with grayscale, it's kind of like a, a bit of a middle finger to grayscale is, as a way, like that they're clapping back at them and be approving somebody else before they approve GBTC's conversion. Um, but I still think that's rather unlikely. Um, but so the way I'd mentioned before that it goes 45 days, 45 days, bunch of all these different deadlines. The ultimate final deadlines, each of those deadlines, the first three, the SEC can delay, approve, or deny. And almost always they approve, they choose to delay. And then at the final deadline, they've always denied. Um, the final deadline, so the first one coming up is ARC and 21 shares. That's January 10th of 2024. Um, so that's part of the reason why we're confident that 2024 is going to happen. Um, and then the rest are all in March of 2024. And then... Um, Global X actually filed there in April of 2024, and then Hashdex is in May of 2024. And Hashdex's application was very unique, um, and I think the SEC is going to find it hard to actually deny that. But Hashdex's application would hold um, futures and spot. Uh, that said, for all those reasons, we're, we're pretty confident it's going to happen in 24, and those are the dates we're watching. So it sounds like you're 95% by, you know, the end of 2024, you're really talking about like mid-March is when the sort of, the, they all sort of conglomerate as a final deadline. And is that, is that sort of your expectation that? Yeah. So I my there's two real deadlines that I've been watching and I've said the last few months, it's, it's right. Some sort of time period after the grayscale decision, which just happened. The SEC is going to have to do something. We're not certain if they're going to make grayscale fully reapply the 19 before, is it basically going to set it right back to another deadline prior and say like, all right, now they asked, we're, we're going to take 60 days or 90 days or 45 days to come up with uh, another order to on the grayscale ruling. So that it's possible that this happens in Q4, right? And I think once they approve, if they approve grayscale in Q4, they're going to approve everyone, right? So then all of a sudden that, that goes into our 75% odds. The problem is if we go into January 10th of 2024, the SEC, we, I can't imagine they're going to deny ARK and 21 shares who has like mostly the same things that BlackRock has in January of 2024. And then things will sufficiently change to approve all these other filings in March of 2024. So if, if ARK and 21 shares get denied in January, um, those odds of 95 will get cut in half, maybe probably more um, just because that, that would be an insane move. That said, I mentioned Hashdex. Hashdex's application Basically, rather than going, so ETFs, you can create a redeem with cash or usually with in-kind creations. So in this case, you could hand over Bitcoin and get back shares of the ETF or vice versa. Um, we think the SEC and the SEC has hinted that they might have a problem with that based on worrying about manipulation and settlement of Bitcoin, which whatever, that, that's their argument, right? But basically what Hashdex has done is saying they're not going to get involved in that. All of our create and re creations and redemptions of the ETF are going to be cash settled. So you're going to hand cash over and you'll get shares back and vice versa. The way that they're going to get spot Bitcoin exposure is they're going to do um, exchange for physical EFP trades, which basically means they're going to trade the futures for equivalent exposure of spot. So there's no really underlying going, touching an exchange that the SEC is worried about is subject to manipulation. There's no settlement risk. Um, so basically it's like letting the futures, like instead of rolling them, it's just letting them convert into Bitcoin, Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin, if you think about it. So even if they do deny these other projects, these other applications, 
I think the SEC will have a really hard time denying hashtags. One way they could do it potentially is, and I've been saying this also for months, is, and we didn't go back, I said there was another way that the SEC could deny grayscale still besides revoking futures, focusing on something that doesn't have to do with futures. And one of those things is uh, custody. Right. So if they go after some of these custody rules, we've seen what the SEC will do with SAB 121, not allowing banks to hold any crypto, all these different things. So we know that the SEC is is watching custody and might go after it on that on those realms. So if they really go after custody and, and some of these denial letters, then um, things will go over downhill very quick on our odds. Yeah. And, and they have, um, in addition to SAB 121, right, there's there's movement on the custody rule itself, right? There's a, a comment period or proposed rule. So, um, but you do still have, you know, non-bank uh, traditionals like a Fidelity, for example, that custody. And um, so I I agree with you that there, there's, there's some, there's stuff there that most of the things the SEC has been focused on in crypto aren't really Bitcoin specific, but yes, on custody, that's something that makes a lot of sense. Um, James, before we wrap, I mean, I think, what has it been like uh, at Bloomberg uh, covering this? I just a little bit, get a little, uh, you know, not too personal, <laughs> but, you know, Bloomberg's obviously, yeah, I'm a terminal user. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bloomberg overall. And, it, but it's, you know, it's, it's a widely used traditional uh, financial tool, like, and, and, and Bloomberg's gotten really great at incorporating more cryptocurrency uh, uh, data and news and coverage. But, you know, ha- have you been like, have people looked at you with like a strange eye in the, and in, 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 while you covered this uh, fascinating saga, like what's it been like being inside the, the belly of traditional markets uh, covering uh, the Bitcoin story? Yeah. So I'll give you a bit of a background. I, my first experience with this was my sophomore year of college in 2011, right? So the, or freshman year of college in 2011. Um, so I, pushed Bitcoin to the back of my mind. And I actually saw Kathy Wood giving a speech on her white paper for why Bitcoin mattered in the fall of 2016. And that's when I first started diving in crypto for personal reasons. Um, Just like I was very interested in it. So basically I went down the rabbit hole before I did it professionally. And then I worked for Bloomberg Intelligence and I reported to two people. One of them was Mike McGlone, who's a commodity strategist. And he wanted to start covering crypto in 2017 in the heydays because he wanted to call it a bull market. And we got, he was like, do you know anything? And I was like, I actually do. So basically I worked with Mike McGlone on the commodity side and Eric Botunas on the ETF side. ETFs were mainly my background. Um, and so that's why like, I kind of sit in this perfect like, little overlap between uh, crypto funds, uh, crypto ETFs, if you will. Um, so that's my background in covering. But when we first started doing this in 2017, we were just trying to get pricing data. We were trying to get any sort of data whatsoever. And the higher ups were just like, what are you doing? We're like shooting us down left and right. And it was funny. Um, um, the news was covering it a little bit more. They were more ex- accepting of it because all they cared about is really reads and getting things right and, and talking to people. But like from an actual product standpoint, um, Bloomberg hadn't bought in really at all. Um, that kind of changed in 2020 and 2021, which is funny. Like the people that were shooting us down left and right, and we were trying to get more data on the terminal so we could write to it, um, came back to us and we're like, oh, now we're interested and blah, blah, blah. And we, we, <laughs> we literally sent emails back like, you weren't interested a, a year ago. Like what, what happened? <laughs> um, so basically something from the top came down. Um, Bloomberg invested in a lot of crypto reporters who actually knew a decent, about, decent amount about the markets. Um, um, so there's been a huge shift. We actually have now an analyst. He's based in Australia. His name's Jamie Coots, and he covers things from an on-chain perspective and looks at all those metrics that you guys are very familiar with. So we actually have somebody in my department, Bloomberg Intelligence, doing research on um, base chains and 
um, second layers and all these different things um, from a Bloomberg intelligence standpoint. So things have basically done a complete 180 from when we first started coming to, covering them in, in 2017. And now there's a whole group of us. I work closely with Elliot Stein, who's our litigation analyst. So he's helped me a lot with this Grayscale case. We have a guy, Nathan Dean, who's our regulatory guy and is very on top of what's happening with the, the crypto varying levels of crypto legislation, whether it's stable coin or anything like that. So there's like a whole group of us that are constantly. And then we have a, a bankruptcy lawyer who's covering a lot of these bankruptcies, whether it's FTX and BlockFi, a Voyager, all these different things. So we it's it's become, as you've seen, most people you've been in space a long time. It's like the modern uh, traditional media has like kind of absorbed a lot of this. So has Bloomberg has done the same thing. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, you guys have great coverage. You know, I follow Mike McGlone and Eric Balchunas and you and, and Elliot Stein. Um, so uh, and, and recommend our listeners check out James on Twitter. J-S-E-Y-F-F on Twitter is a great follow. Uh, James, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brain. It's been a great conversation and, you know, we'll keep following your coverage. Yeah, thanks. Long time listener, first time caller. So happy to be here. <laughs> awesome thank you james that's it for this week's episode of galaxy brains thanks to our guest bimnet abibi from galaxy trading and james safert uh, etf analyst at bloomberg intelligence great interview with james really interesting stuff happening on the regulatory front in this space and markets are tricky these days love talking to those two guys i hope you enjoyed it and everyone have a safe and happy weekend we'll catch you next week Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.